This is Linux at Work, Episode B, for the 31st of October, 2020. Welcome. I'm your host, Ben Vasharan, along with my co-host, Chester Wisniewski. Hi, Chester. Hey, Ben. Good to hear from you again. We've, uh, we're improving our consistency, if not perfectly yet. Uh, this is the most consistent we've ever been on this podcast, so uh, I'm glad we're making some progress. And we had a whole bunch of things we've been discussing uh, over the last uh, couple of months that we wanted to cover uh, topically in the podcast around, you know, software that we use on Linux that we like to play with or that we like to use at work. And uh, so this episode, uh, we we kind of agreed we were going to do a little bit of a teardown on some virtualization for our home labs. Um, you and I are both working in the computer security industry, and I have a, a home lab I needed to rebuild. As After I did a renovation, I, I decided the rack mount server in my bedroom closet might have been a little noisier than I uh, was really happy with. So as part of that, I wanted to look at some different solutions and see kind of what was the top of the heap these days. And and you you have a lab as well, yeah. I've got multiple labs, so um, I, I've got a small lab at my home office and in my my day to day work office that I haven't been to in a while. I've got a rack mount server as well, or two rack mount servers. One of them is on its way out. I recently went through a similar process as you. Uh, I moved house, and I thought now's the time to review what I'm doing from a virtualization perspective to come up with you know, something that's going to better suit my needs. And I have a little bit of a background with some of this stuff in that, you know, I've been doing this for quite a long time. And I uh, probably close to 10 years ago started using VirtualBox uh, headless um, on a Linux box to host a bunch of VMs I was using for malware testing and reversing some things and kind of creating a test network where I could monitor all the traffic, that kind of stuff. And then I moved from VirtualBox to Zen uh, running on Arch Linux. Uh, so using just the, the Zen modified kernel in the Zen tools uh, layered on top of Arch uh, uh, as my platform for a few years. And then most recently when I got the noisy server that ended up in my bedroom closet recently, I had used uh, VMware ESXi, ESXi as it had been freely available. And uh, I was quite familiar with VMware and I thought I would give that a try. So when we came back around to it, um, I ended up talking to my boss and I ended up talking to you. And all of a sudden I'm like, people are suggesting me that I take a look at Proxmox that I take a look at Overt, that I take a look at ESXi, that I take a look at Zen again, and um, you even brought up Hyper-V. Yeah, don't don't judge me on the Hyper-V thing, but uh, I, you know, I, I like free and open source, and I think it's fantastic. But one of my previous certifications was in Hyper-V, and Microsoft have actually done a good job with their hypervisor. It, it, it's not bad, and I thought it was worth throwing it in the mix as well if you're evaluating everything else. Well, as we know from the last episode of Linux at Work, you do love Microsoft. Uh, so it was appropriate that you get assigned the task to, to take a look at Hyper-V. But I, I agree with you. I mean, we have a, a ton of our customers and um, other IT people I'm friends with, I know, that run very large operations in Hyper-V environments. So clearly the performance and reliability uh, are up there. And I, I'm not sure if we covered it in the podcast. I think we did in this podcast talk a little bit about how Microsoft uh, appeared to be perhaps porting the hypervisor to a Linux kernel so that it wasn't necessarily a requirement to run it on Windows. And I don't know if any product around that is shipped or anything, but uh, clearly with the large quantity of Linux machines running in Microsoft's Azure cloud, uh, they've got a vested interest in making Linux work reliably, at least on their hypervisor, if not being able to be the hypervisor itself. Yeah, and like in a 
within a APJ, so where, where I am in the world, um, we see it everywhere. It, it's there are actually free tiers to Hyper-V, which a lot of people don't realize. So why wouldn't you consider it? So much like ESX, only fully featured, uh, you can get access to it. So again, we didn't evaluate. Without a Windows license? I beg your pardon? Without a Windows license? Without a Windows license, there is a Hyper-V core version. It's a small ISO. It's about a gig. Uh, it's easy to spin up. You can add it to a cluster. It's fully featured. My biggest gripe with Hyper-V, and we may as well get into it right now, is there is still no web UI for it unless you pair it with Microsoft Azure. So there are uh, connectors to get your Hyper-V cluster talking out to the internet and have it fully cloud managed. But the one thing that I'm still not happy with all these years on, and I think it's been six years since I've used Hyper-V in anger, was... I couldn't manage it locally. If I could manage it locally with a web UI, I would actually consider it. There are some really cool features, uh, like, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with various forms of live migration that you can do from a uh, Hyper-V, uh, sorry, I should say, uh, from a hypervisor perspective. And Hyper-V offers that. They've actually got this uh, tool, it's called Hyper-V Replica, which does asynchronous replication as well. So I've got, say, a workload at my home office that I just want somewhere else just in case, you can just do asynchronous replication of selected VMs. And things like that is really nice and really simple and intuitive to set up. So here I am uh, talking about Microsoft again, but I'm impressed with Hyper-V if you're a Windows sysadmin, but it's still built around Microsoft Management Console or MMC, and you still need the snap-in unless you're using the Azure portal. So... To me, that was a big failure and one of the reasons why I'm not considering it because I don't necessarily want to have to log into Azure every time I want to do something small with a VM. I would like to just be able to browse to a local host um, within my LAN or over the VPN and be able to get direct access to the hypervisor, which you still can't do in 2020 with Hyper-V if you're a Linux user. If you're on Windows, you add the snap in and you're fine. Uh, but I don't have any Windows hosts within my network that aren't uh, running malware uh, for testing purposes. So I, that was a big downfall for me. Well, yeah. So I guess the I decided to do some performance testing and some user interface testing based on your feedback uh, about that. And also, I, I think you had tried Proxmox in the past. So uh, I wanted to kind of see what's the current state of management what's the current feature set and what's the current performance. So I had a, a, a new, a new old um, Dell R730 server uh, 2U with a, a SAS uh, uh, RAID array and 128 gigs of RAM, uh, 24 core Xeon. So a uh, pretty good setup. And what I did is uh, for, I started out my testing with uh, Proxmox. So my, my existing server was still making noise and heating my bedroom closet uh, the only benefit to that is I store my linens in there, so my towels were nice and warm thanks to the old server. Uh, but the uh, Pro Proxmox downloaded uh, the ISO. It's free, and for those of you that may not have played with Proxmox, it's based on the KVM virtualization hypervisor that's uh, built into the Linux kernel. Uh, if you've used VirtualBox, uh, VirtualBox by default uses KVM as its hypervisor as well. So it's a pretty robust hypervisor as far as compatibility and support for operating systems and all that kind of thing. And that's kind of what you're getting with Proxmox is kind of a fancy way to manage 
KVM VMs no different than using, say, the GUI and VirtualBox, in my opinion, which is the underlying support for hardware virtualization is identical because it is using KVM. Uh, but the, the management tool is kind of what sets it apart. So when you go to install it, there's an ISO. You load up the ISO. All that is is a, a base Linux installation with a nice GUI installer that walks you through the process of, uh, you know, uh, formatting your hard disk and automatically installing Proxmox and its web-based user interface. And all, all of the um, hardware virtualization stuff, uh, if you've played with KVM-based things before, you may be familiar with Vert.io, uh, all the Vert.io drivers. Was, so the native NIC driver, the native disk driver, etc., use the KVM Vert drivers. And the remote control for the GUI, if you want to connect to a guest, uh, uses Spice. Um, and Spice is a, a remote, you know, similar to a VMware console where you, you know, get a VNC-like interface into your guests, but it does enable you to do things like copy and paste. Uh, it also allows you to uh, map through drives. You can map your local CD or DVD into the image, uh, you know, map an ISO into it remotely, uh, attach a virtual thumb drive or USB device, that kind of thing. So it, it, it really does mimic a virtual box VMware-like experience that way. But uh, I, I was just, I found it clunky. Um, I, I wasn't terribly, the web GUI was easy enough to use, but it, it was a little awkward. Uh, I, I, I really don't like Spice. I mean, it still seems immature, even though it's 10 plus years old. Uh, the, the few clients that are available to the Spice clients, I guess they call them, they just seem like they're not terribly reliable at mapping the USB and the disks, which means them pointless, in which case then you're like, oh, well, I'll just use VMC or RDP. But even that feels clunky. I don't know. I just, um, you would, you, when's the last time you played with Proxmox, Ben? I played with it about six months ago, maybe four months ago. And yeah, I found the similar experience. I, I, I actually didn't like the GUI. It was actually Reddit that got me to, to check it out because everybody on our home lab on Reddit uh, raves about Proxmox and even the performance, but um, oh, you millennials and your Reddit. <laughs> Reddit's fantastic. Don't uh, don't get me started. It, you know, everyone in Home Lab talks about it, and I've even heard that it's the next thing when it comes to enterprise virtualization. But I, I found the GUI to be particularly bad, uh, like logouts, timeouts. It was running on some decent hardware at the time, and I just. I wasn't convinced in the end, but one of the things that people said was it is more performant. And uh, you did some direct uh, comparisons between workloads on ESX and uh, Proxmox, did you not? Yeah, I did. Uh, I decided that I could kill two birds with one stone. So the day I started my testing, which was just over a week from the date we're recording this podcast, uh, was the date that Ubuntu 2010 Groovy Gorilla released. So I went and grabbed the literally hours old ISO of Groovy Gorilla and thought I'll do some Pharonix test suite testing against it. Now, I, I, I don't know if, um, most people probably have not run a Pharonix test suite. They may not be familiar with Pharonix. Uh, a guy named Michael Larabelle runs a website called Pharonix, which is a fantastic, uh, source of Linux information, but he also produces a very comprehensive test suite for automating uh, testing uh, and comparisons uh, to do hardware testing, to compare operating systems, and all kinds of stuff. It's really good stuff. So I loaded the Pharonix test suite onto Groovy Gorilla. There's a few acrobatic moves you have to do to get that working, just in that 
uh, libraries and packages are named slightly differently than it expects. And it was a bit, some, some mental gymnastics I had to work through to get that to work. But I thought a fair thing to do is I could both test the performance of Groovy Gorilla and the different hypervisors at the same time uh, and give it a go. So I did load that up on Proxmox. I ran the productivity test suite. Uh, so Pharonix test suite, PTS it's known as, um, has some standard types of tests. If you run all of them, it literally can take the better part of a day to run all of the different benchmarks that are offered by the Pharonix test suite. So I chose just one that I thought was representative of the kinds of workloads I would be using. And so I chose the one called productivity. So it does some LibreOffice tests. It does some image manipulation tests, that kind of thing. So it's not looking at frames per second for video games. It's looking at, uh, you know, read and write cycles, co uh, compute cycles of IO, moving data around off disk and in memory, the kinds of things that I do with my virtualization environment. Like I, maybe I'll post the results, uh, ultimately in the show notes uh, for this podcast. But uh, spoiler alert, the Proxmox was the least performant of all the things I tried. And depending on the test, it, it lagged between 5 and 20% behind the other solutions. So I was not largely just not impressed. I mean, the, the interface for managing it is certainly superior to doing it on the command line. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it is just KVM with a web GUI. And uh, I, I just didn't, I didn't get the good feels. So after the Proxmox, what did you go to next? Uh, was it KVM? No, I went on to Zen. Um, I love, I have a soft spot for Zen. So it had an unfair advantage in all of this because while I had been reasonably happy using ESXi on my old server, um, I yearned for something open source. And I, I used Zen for years. And the big problem I had with Zen, the last go around using it, was, uh, well, it was twofold. One, was the lack of good GUI management tools. At that time, if you didn't buy the commercial Citrix Zen server or weren't willing to accept their license terms, uh, you were going to have to do everything command line, which is exactly what I did. And I'm not afraid of the command line. But, um, but on the other hand, uh, gosh, it's an awkward experience if you're having to try to do a lot of snapshots or any kind of uh, detailed management. It gets very, very awkward very, very quickly. But I, I sucked it up and I did it last time. And then I got bit by the second problem, which was that the open source Zen implementation, if you weren't running the official Citrix go at it, uh, just was always lagging behind. And as an Arch Linux person and, and, and in fact running it on Arch, I just kept getting in situations where I'd find out about a security vulnerability uh, through my research at my job and I'd be like, oh, I need to go patch my server. And I just go and update it and then I come back a few hours later and realize I had like broke everything and none of my VMs started because Zen was unhappy. And so that, that was my bad experience with it previously, but the performance of it previously had been great. It just was a lack of tools and stuff. So it was really refreshing to come around this time because um, the, the it's fully open source now. Zen, uh, Citrix has sort of contributed their, their code back to the community. It's now known as XCP-NG. And uh, the, the organization that's maintaining that also has a web interface for managing it called Zen Orchestra that is a semi-commercial product, but is also available for free for most basic needs that people are going to have. 
And so uh, that was the next one I moved on to. So I gave that a go myself because uh, I was the same. I really wanted to go down the Zen path. I really wanted to go down the free and open source path uh, when selecting the hypervisor when I was moving house and had a chance to rebuild my network. And I was left somewhat underwhelmed by the, the Zen Orchestra interface. And it's nothing against the developers. It looks okay, but it also kind of looked and felt like a, like a high school or a, a college project. It didn't feel like something that I could confidently deploy in my infrastructure, know that it was going to work uh, every time. There was also some big feature gaps between the commercial and the the non-commercial or the free version. Uh, I don't know if you came across any of that at all, Chet. Well, that was one of the disappointments in that uh, when the project launched in 2018, when Citrix open-sourced the official Zen server, uh, there was this big brouhaha about how Zen Orchestra was going to be totally free and there would be no upsell, and the only thing you'd be upsold on is buying support. Uh, and that uh, is obviously an ideal situation for both the um, for the users and often for the developers as well. I mean, everybody's got to feed their kids. It takes a lot of work to maintain a project. Everybody's got to make money. Uh, but uh, you shouldn't, you know, break my so- you know break the software. Say it's free, but break it, and unless I want to pay you, I, I really don't like that model either. Uh, so I was kind of when I was initially reading about it, kind of excited, going, "Oh, great!" Like. It's going to be free, and then if I want help, I'll pay. But it wasn't the case. They've changed their mind after making all those promises. And as you say, they, you know, like some of the backup uh, functions and actually a good, I would say, what would you say, two thirds of the interface, I think, was pretty much locked up behind a license. Yeah. And it wasn't blatantly obvious by looking at the interface either. So, you know, you'd click on a feature and realize that you're not licensed for it. Um, the one thing that I, I was impressed with was the setup process of Zen, Zen Orchestrator, though. Uh, I browsed to a web interface. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. The ZOA, the XOA thing? Yeah. You know, you give it the, the LAN IP address that connects to it, provisions it for you, and then you've got something to connect to. I was actually really impressed with that. I thought the onboarding and setup for that was, was actually really cool and really easy. So unlike you, I found the experience really positive, and I almost went with it. Uh, I really was close and we'll get to my conclusions at the very end, but the, my experience with the performance was excellent. Um, it, it, it just totally blew the pants off of, uh, uh, Proxmox. There was just no, I don't think there was a single benchmark that it lost at, or if it lost, it was like within a percent, it was so close and almost all of them were significantly more performant in the 10 to 20% range. Uh, for the benchmarks. Now that's not real world usage. Fair enough. But I also don't have time to do real world usage of four different VM platforms over a weekend because I have work to do and I need to pick one. <laughs> so I, as it is, I spent my entire weekend last weekend just loading different VM platforms and doing benchmarks for the weekend. So uh, that was about all I could put into it without getting back to like real work, which I rely on this for. And I thought the performance was excellent. Uh, the, the, the Zen remote tools are similarly gimped, if you will, uh, like the spice stuff for KVM, but I found them actually to be a little superior. I found the drivers to be superior. I found the support to be superior. I didn't really mind the web interface being, um, not having that full commercial polish on it because I just don't need polish. What I need is, can I get to the spots to quickly do the things I need to do? I need to provision a disk. I need to add a private network. I need to 
uh, stick it on a VLAN. I need to, you know, these are the everyday things I do. And all of them were reasonably easy to get to, reasonably easy to find, not terribly confusing to figure out how they worked without, uh, you know, I'm coming into this with almost zero experience using orchestra, orchestra. And yet within a few minutes, I was able to figure out what I needed to do each time I needed to do something. So that, that ticked a lot of boxes for me and the open source nature of it and the performance really ticked a lot of boxes as well. Uh, it's based, uh, when you, when you use the ISO from, um, XCPNG, it's a CentOS, uh, based OS that stripped down to pretty much just do this. And while you can install packages on it, they advise you against it, which I would agree with them. Uh, to not do that. Uh, while again, if you don't have a licensed copy of Zen Orchestra, the automatic updating features through the web GUI are disabled. But if you simply log into the secure shell to the host uh, CentOS system, you can add the repos in that you need and automate it there without any problem at all. It's only the web GUI uh, uh, options for automating updates that are specific to the commercial version. So there, initially I was worried that I wasn't going to be able to get the you know updates if I didn't pay, but it wasn't, it, it gives you that impression because they want you to pay. Uh, but it wasn't that difficult to set up correctly uh, by, by uh, adding it into the, uh, the DNF on the host system. But it, so with that in mind, though, like you were previously using ESX and where do you think these hypervisors stand? Like one of the things that I kept coming up with was this it's not bad mentality. And I don't want to go full ESX fan uh, boy or girl here, but like everything else that I tested. It's not a Microsoft product, <laughs> so you have to restrain yourself. I, uh, I'm not going to comment on that one, but uh, no, but this is the problem is like, I don't mind Hyper-V when I've used it in the past. It was good. ESX hits every one of my box, uh, like ticks every one of my boxes from I think every perspective. Like we're not talking about multi-node clusters. You don't run a SAN. Uh, we've got no share storage. Uh, so we're talking about a single host. I have run a SAN. Oh, do you? <laughs> I'm not currently, but I have. Okay. Uh, but you're not using shared storage amongst your hosts uh, at the moment, correct? No, I'm not. No, not not currently. I mean, I've thought about it, but I'm not. Yeah, and I, I'm in the same boat. Like, I've got my, multiple hosts, but my need to move VMs between hosts is few and far between. And this is why, like, I was looking at all these different solutions, and I just kept kind of shrugging and saying, it's not bad. It's good to know it exists in case ESX ever pulls their free tier. But why would I want to move? And that's where I kept going. Because there was actually one other horse that we in the race that we haven't talked about yet, and that's Overt. And I actually wanted to fall in love with Overt, um, uh, reading the documentation, looking at the APIs. And uh, I should say, uh, Overt is the upstream of Red Hat's virtualization platform. And one of the things that's really nice is there's also a another addition called Manage IQ, which is the upstream version for Red Hat's cloud forms. And I really wanted to fall into this Red Hat ecosystem where I could use Manage IQ from an automation perspective. Uh, like one of the things that I run is a Cuckoo Sandbox for malware analysis. I could see me quickly write in some integration uh, into manage IQ to provision environments or to have Cuckoo automatically provision environments and really create a really nice level of automation in my infrastructure, which wouldn't save me too much time, but I would appreciate it and uh, get a lot of use out of it, I think. But where Overt falls flat 
And the reason why I didn't think Overt is a good fit for home use and the reason why I think that, you know, those on Reddit that are always talking about Proxmox aren't going down this path of maybe using Overt is just, I don't know if I should say in typical Red Hat fashion, but it was just so heavy. And that's one thing that I struggled with is I, I don't have powerful hosts here, uh, especially in my home network. Uh, both of my hypervisors are running i5 processors. So like my, my workload's not extensive. But what I needed to do to get Overt to run was, of course, it, it's a flavor of CentOS um, being Red Hat. Uh, it's got cockpit ready to go and pre-installed. So you, it's waiting for you to configure the operating system via a web GUI, which is nice. Though I'd probably opt to do that via CLI. But then Overt's interface itself looks really good and it felt really good. But it has an enterprise expectation to it that just didn't fit well with me. So by that I mean during the install process, before you can get started, you need to have a supervisor or a management VM. So you don't just have the overhead of the hypervisor and CentOS. You then need to run a VM in your infrastructure that is uh, incredibly heavy. It needed, I think it was 4 gig of memory and two CPUs assigned to it. So it doesn't fit this home labber mentality with, uh, when it comes to trying to, you know, get more out of less. Uh, so you need a hypervisor. But it, that's not that different than Zen, right? Cause you, with Zen, you had to have an orchestrator VM running. Now, granted, it was a lightweight VM, but similarly, you, you had this hypervisor and then you had to load another VM in order to manage that. Hypervisor. Yeah. And I don't like that. I, I don't, I think it's unnecessary overhead. Uh, and it's something that ESX has managed to avoid, Proxmox has managed to avoid, Hyper-V has managed to avoid. Uh, you should be able to do things locally without having to run a supervisor, and that's what really let it down. The other thing that let Overt down for me in the end as well was it, there's an expectation, because it's an enterprise virtualization product, there's an expectation that you've got shared storage. So it was prompting and saying, well, where's your sand? Where's your sand? In the end, I spent about two hours on DuckDuckGo trying to find the correct answer. I found a solution to trick the product into thinking that there was a SAN installed, which then let me go ahead and complete the installation. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't very friendly to use. But looking at the overall feature set, looking at all of its capabilities, it's got so much potential, but with that admin VM that you need to run or the supervisor VM, as well as the need for shared storage and compute just to run this thing. Uh, to me, it really failed as a lightweight uh, hypervisor for home lab or home office use. So that's uh, that's where I landed with Overt as well. Well, I hate to tell you, Ben, but I don't think they want you to use it at home and it's not made for you. Uh, I think they're hoping that you're going to use it in a commercial environment and buy lots and lots of lovely Red Hat licenses to continue their momentum. I'm not going to argue with that. However, how do you get users on board? Like, how do you get new generations to say, I want to use Red Hat? Oh, I agree. Uh, our company gives away our, our UTM uh, for free with a very generous license for that very reason. If If people are willing to run it in their home networks and get familiar with it and like it and trust it and be comfortable with it, they're going to take it to work with them. Exactly. And how many junior engineers, uh, I don't know how long it's been since you've done an interview, but uh, I've been interviewing for a number of different roles recently, as in interviewing candidates. I've not been interviewing myself. Uh, and they've all got ESX 
on their resume as a competency. They know how to use it. They're confident with talking about, you know, the fundamentals of virtualization with VMware products. Why is that? There's one reason for that. It's it's you can install it at home. You've got a nice interface to use and it does everything you need from a home lab in perspective all the way up to that mass enterprise uh, configuration as well. So, well, I mean, this is where we get back to Freeze and Beer and Freeze and Libro. I mean, it, it, it's 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 the complexity. And and uh, you know, you mentioned being able to automate things like Overt uh, and being you know having robust APIs and that kind of thing. And I, I'm going to throw in two mini reviews that I wasn't planning on throwing in, but I don't know if you've heard of AWS or Azure. Uh, but that's where they shine and excel as well. And that's another consideration, right? Like I spent a decent chunk of coin on getting this server into my house, my new server. And for the price of that, I could probably run most of my VMs in Amazon, Microsoft's, Google's compute infrastructure, uh, and have even more robust APIs and flexibility with regard to redundancy, performance, bandwidth, you know, all kinds of things, right? It's why so many enterprises are moving to the cloud. And that, that, that probably needs to be thrown into this conversation a little bit to be going, well, what is your application and what is the practical? And I think, you know, for you and I, um, it make, it makes to me little sense to do what I'm doing in the cloud, uh, because uh, these are test environments. They're not production. They don't need four different sources of power from four different uh, parts of the world to ensure that it never goes down. Uh, I don't need 40 gigabits a second internet. I don't need the things that you might desire in a production environment uh, are re less relevant to me, but it's something to consider because I'm looking at it and going, gosh, if I dropped, I dropped about $2,000 us. Uh, I'm in Canada. So I, I always call it the currency and being that you're in Australia I'm, 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 people will mistake me for an American because of my accent, but I, I need to point uh, so I dropped $2,000 US, which is, uh, you know, $2,600, $2,700 Canadian. Um, it's a lot of money. And for that money, I could run a lot of loads in AWS for a significant amount of time. Uh, but the flexibility of having it on my home network and being able to spin up and down all these things, um, I think the the convenience of that outweighs it, but it's something people should consider when we're talking. We're going to talk about virtualization. I think it's um, uh, irresponsible to not understand that there's other options that you could almost consider open source. I mean, arguably most of Amazon's infrastructure is running on Zen. Um, some of it is uh, running on, I believe a, a new KVM hybrid of some sort, and it's unclear how much of their infrastructure is on which, but my understanding is the vast majority of Amazon is running on Zen. Clearly in the case of Azure, you're running on Hyper-V. We're not really open source in any capacity or, or way, uh, shape or form there. But if you're silly enough to do business with Google, um, you're open source again, you know, at least the, the software you're running on is mostly open source, if not the, the APIs and the management piece of it. So that's a consideration for a lot of organizations that does this make any sense to even be running these things? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, we, again, I, I run partial workloads within the cloud, but like one of the things that I find really difficult with cloud compute is managing your resources. Like um, I've got MSDN credits within Azure and one of my biggest problems with Azure is when you delete a virtual machine, uh, so it, it leaves a bunch of artifacts and resources. So you'll be billed for say an IP address that for whatever reason doesn't get deleted in cleanup. So you, you notice that your billings actually go up and up and up. And it, it's difficult to 
Uh, I personally find uh, Azure, for example, very difficult to manage your resources and compare what you're using versus what's dormant. It, it, it becomes a cost management problem. And if you don't have a big budget, that you need to take that into consideration. But um, I do agree, like the APIs and things that I got excited about over in Overt, uh, totally, it's just, you know, based on my hobbies and my passions, it would have been useful. But um, for things like penetration testing and security assessments, I generally use the cloud, um, uh, like uh, either Azure, AWS, or DigitalOcean sometimes as well. Um, just to run my attack infrastructure purely because I don't want to be running my attack infrastructure from uh, my IP address or the office's IP address. It's um, hugely irresponsible and uh, a sure way to get blacklisted if anyone notices you're doing something um, that, of course, you're sanctioned to do. But, um, yeah, it's pretty valid points in the cloud. First rule of Linux at work is don't mention the NBN. <laughs> yeah. the uh, If you want to laugh, uh, have just Google Australian NBN or DuckDuckGo Australian NBN and uh, have a look at the, the fiber or the lack of fiber that's been rolled out over $6 billion. So uh, that leads us to the final uh, product, which was ESXi, which we've mentioned throughout. And uh, to an interesting point that you made when we talked about updating a little bit, that's its Achilles heel. Updating ESXi on the free version is a nightmare. Um, it's infrequent that updates occur. It's approximately quarterly. I, I haven't measured or counted them. Maybe six a year, but I, I doubt it. It's hard to know because they don't notify you and there's no easy way to be notified from what I can tell if you're not an enterprise subscription customer from VMware. Uh, and to apply the updates, you cannot do it in the GUI to my knowledge. Uh, at all, uh, unless you have vSphere in their enterprise product. And as a security professional, updates are incredibly important to me. And it's been one of my main nightmares of, because it's a quarterly thing, I can't remember the bizarro EX, ESX CLI command line arguments to manually go, I have to log in to download the update for the free product. And then I have to SCP it uh, over or upload it to a data store through a web browser. Then I've got to turn on secure shell. Then I've got to remember the command line arguments or Google them or look them up in my pin board to figure out what they are in order to manually load that update bundle. Allegedly, there are arguments that allow you to specify a URL. I've never gotten them to work. It's Awkward at best, which as a security pro makes me really anti-VMware and angry at them for the people that are using the free version. Because what it means is the average person is going to go, it works. I'm not going to update it. It's just too much of a pain in the butt. I don't know how to do it. I couldn't figure it out last time. There's too many steps. It might take me an hour. I've got to reboot the server. I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to leave it. And leaving it is how we end up with so many hacked people and hacked customers and jump boxes that the criminals are using to jump from environment to environment to environment and cause so much damage in the world. It frustrates me that you make updating difficult as an incentive to buy a commercial product. Um, I think it's unethical. Yep, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, via vSphere as well, it's so easy. So it's we know those capabilities exist. Uh, we know that vSphere is probably built on a set of RESTful APIs. Uh, so it, there's probably an API that you could just trigger to run the update, but that, that's hidden from those free users, which is somewhat irresponsible But because uh, it's not a big enough reason for a lot of people to, to actually pay for a commercial license. It's good to note as well that there isn't actually a friendly tier of commercial license for ESX. 
to go back to Reddit that us millennials love, uh, thanks Chet, is there's actually a couple guys from, or girls, uh, from VMware that are on like the rsysadmin subreddit and the homelab subreddit. And they've posted a few times to say, oh yeah, look, if you do need a license, DM me and I'll organize you an NFR license for the next 12 months. So there are ways to obtain a licensed version of ESX if you really need to and uh, need it. But like if there was say a, I don't know, let's say a $99 US license for non-commercial private use, I think it would be quite attractive because uh, some people want that type one hypervisor, uh, but without that cost. And uh, I don't know, something to consider if anyone from uh, VMware ever has a listen. Uh, so I'm going to contradict you. I, I, I wouldn't be against paying a little bit for additional support for personal use, but you do not hold me hostage over updates. That is not ethical. It is not appropriate and it's not acceptable. Um, it's no different than the, I feel the same way about another reason I get my hate on for windows. I'm going to have, I'm going to go the, I'm going to be the anti Ben. I'm going to be the, I'm going to have my hate on for Microsoft for a minute, which, which is, you know, we're going to hold people hostage to not having encrypted BitLocker on their laptops because they bought a laptop with windows home edition because we want to charge you another hundred dollars for pro so that you're not going to be uh, a victim of theft or, or other types of crime uh, against your physical device. That is, that is unacceptable. Our phones have encryption for free by default. Uh, Apple does it. Google does it. If Apple and Google can do it, Microsoft needs to step up and do it. And VMware, no differently, should be at least making sure that we're safe in our usage of their free tier. Uh, and you should never be uh, uh, making people vulnerable to make a dollar. That is unacceptable behavior. Um, now I'll can get off my... Um, soapbox and continue my ESXi interview, which is I ended up going with ESXi again. Uh, I, I, I loaded it up. The, the process was so easy. The fact that I can run it from a thumb drive because it runs in RAM meant I didn't even waste any of my RAID array on it. I just stuck an old eight gig drive that was in the bottom of a bag in my laptop bag into the server and went, yeah, just install it on that. And, and, and it's safe to do because it doesn't write to it. And uh, the performance... I would say is equal to Zen, and that was an interesting thing. Uh, about a third of the benchmarks were literally head-to-head -head within a tenth of a second to complete between Zen and VMware uh, hypervisors. Uh, another third went 5% to Zen, and another third went 5% to VMware. They were literally locked neck and neck in the performance of my uh, Groovy Gorilla tests. And... Um, as you pointed out and praised, and I won't disagree, the interface is just slick, easy, and there's nothing missing in the free tier that I care about. Like, and then, I mean, arguably, it's got open source roots as well, which is why they, I think, uh, got sued for GPL violations because <laughs> they do use the Linux, uh, a lot of Linux uh, components or GNU components anyway. I don't, I forget which, but uh, it's just too easy to go with. And, and what pushed me over the top? So I was at that point on Sunday afternoon last week. I'm like, equivalent performance, a more polished experience, but I'm angry at VMware and they're a competitor of my company and I feel like they're holding people hostage over security, which makes me very angry. And uh, so I'm definitely going with Zen. And then I was just about to pull the trigger and go with Zen and then I went, oh, I need to be able to take these VMs onto my laptop when the pandemic's over. I, I have to travel and take this lab I built and I spent all my time at home building this amazing lab and I need to be able to take a piece of that lab with me 
and do a demonstration uh, for a prospect or a demonstration at a public event like speaking at Black Hat or DEF CON. And not being able to have portability of VMs very easily from KVM and Zen-based environments, whether that's Overt, whether it's Proxmox, whether it's Zen, it's the number one thing that makes them painful. Even though, arguably, if you go with a KVM solution like Proxmox or Overt, it's pay reasonably painless to go from those into virtual box, which is also free, but the virtual box is owned by the devil. And I, I prefer to, I, I, I would, I'll lay down and give VMware a thousand dollars to never do business with Oracle. Uh, like I, I just like, just, I feel squeamish even talking about them. So uh, I, I don't know. That's where I landed. That's where I landed. Now I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy because I think Zen will do everything I need for my lab. And Zen has every bit of performance I need. And I'm perfectly okay with the interface. I'm like, you're, uh, you're less happy with the interface than I am. And, and I accept that, but it would have worked just fine. But not being able to hit a button and move that VM from the lab and onto my laptop and just walk out the door with it and go use that, that was the killer feature that VMware got me on. So you've settled on ESX. That's that's where you're going to be for the foreseeable future? I loaded up via ESX 7 on the, on the box. I've got my VMs up and running. Everything's going. Um, you know, the all the premium features uh, all, that require a license, as you pointed out, are things I'm not doing. I'm not adding iSCSI or... Uh, sans, um, I, I don't need vMotion. I don't, um, the, the, the only anger point is that update thing. I know how to do the update. So it's not that big of a deal for me. It's a deal. It's a, it's emotionally a deal for me because professionally, I know this leads to more people being vulnerable and that makes me mad. Um, but it doesn't affect me personally because I am technical enough. I can deal with it. It's not that big a deal. I, I actually, I literally have a, a, a file in gedit that reminds me what the command line is. And every time I go to do an update, I just go and copy and paste it and, you know, go do it. But, um, yeah, I landed there and I, I, I was frustrated about it cause I really, I, I wanted to choose an open source solution if it was practical, but at the end of the day, I have a job to do and it's the best solution for the job. Yeah. And, uh, I, I landed at the same place. Uh, no surprises there, oh, except that it wasn't Microsoft. Thanks, Chet. Um, no, but I, I landed in the same spot. Uh, I, I just, again, I can't get past. Some people say that the interface is dated, but I, I disagree. I, it's got, ASX has got really strong networking features as well. Uh, so what you can do just, you know, to secure and isolate your VMs the way that the V switch is designed, I, I, I really appreciate. Uh, and again, I, I don't transfer VMs to my notebook all that often. Uh, my X1 Carbon doesn't run virtu virtualization or do virtualization well, I should say. And um, most of my VMs that I take places or that I would want to take places is actually in an office about two hours from my home. So I, I don't have the same need for you to transfer VMs off. But what I do like is that interface that I can trust knows that it works on every platform uh, so I can remotely access those VMs should I need to. So I've landed on ESX as well, not necessarily forever. I'll go through this process again in the future. I'm always looking for change and I'm always looking to get excited over new technology. But for me, uh, ESX was the winner uh, when I went through this process as well. Well, that is the uh, 
the, this is the least generalissimo Stallman episode of Linux at work so far, which is we both concluded uh, that a non open source solution might be the best solution for us. But I think that's part about being honest about getting things done and also um, doing it from an open environment. Uh, to your point, multi-platform support, the fact that I have a full VMware remote console available on my Linux box, but I can jump on someone's Windows box and, and equally VPN back into my environment and access those VMs uh, easily and not be monkeying with spice drivers. That's one thing that the VMware tools are quite mature and they've open sourced the APIs so that they're maintained by the open source community. So when you're running guests that are Linux, the, the tools are not required to be proprietary tools you get from VMware. You just add the Ubuntu or Arch uh, package or whichever uh, OS you're using um, makes it you know easy to do. And yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I hope we can maybe revisit this in 18 months or 24 months and come to a different conclusion. But uh, at the moment... I got work to do and it's serving my needs and uh, I don't run Windows guests very often, but when I do, it's to run malware and uh, <laughs> malware runs great on the SX. So concluding, uh, this has been Linux at Work, episode B. To contact us, stay in touch, please visit us at https colon slash slash www.linuxatwork.org. Our podcasts are available there via RSS on iTunes and Google Podcasts or anywhere else fine podcasts are syndicated. We appreciate your feedback and ideas. Please share them with us via email at hosts at linuxatwork.org or on Twitter at linuxatwork or in our millennial subreddit slash r slash linuxatwork. You got everything gonna be everyone gotta be everyone Don't say you got anything gotta be everything gonna be everyone